With great mojo comes great responsibility. Mojo 5 Mojo 5 We will make America great again. Sam Sorbo. Hi, I'm Sam Sorbo. Welcome to the show. Let's get right into it. I want to talk today about the separation of church and state which was uh, something that Thomas Jefferson included in a letter to a, uh, to a religious leader in order to assure him that the state would not be infringing on the rights of the church. Uh, but we have perverted that phrase to mean that uh, the church has no place in government, which, of course, is absurd. Um, and it's very unfortunate. Um, at the time that, uh, that that phrase was written, Let's just say the government was uh, usurping rights. It had become dangerous, and there was a prevailing thought uh, in the in in these in the nation that was no that was not yet a nation. Uh, there was sort of a prevailing thought that um, um, that uh, the government shouldn't have as much power as it heretofore had had, and so uh, so that is where that phrase comes from. And today, what we've seen is, and I, I've talked about this before. This idea that uh, that you can teach children apart from morality, but if you teach children apart from morality, all you're doing is making better criminals. Think about that. Now, I thought that I thought that there was a, a founding father who actually said that, but I went on the interweb and I looked it up and I couldn't find the quote anywhere, which makes me sad because either they've gotten away with from it or. I must have read somebody else having, having written that. Um, I want to invite you all to join me on Epic TV. Um, and you can go to um, Epic TV and see uh, my stuff is going up as we speak. I'm very excited because I'm doing a new show all about education and how we have lost, we've lost the thread. We've, we've lost the, the focus of what education should be. We, we do not any longer have an understanding of the very word education, sadly, and while I was doing some research for the show, I went and looked up the definition of education and lo and behold, they have perverted it from it's I, 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 the original, which you, of course, it's not the original, original def, uh, um, definition, but Noah Webster put it in his, I think it's the 18, it's an 1800s dictionary that I have that's actually right there on my shelf. Um, 18, 1828 his dictionary and the way that uh, he defined education back then was it basically included moral teaching because it never occurred to them that you could train somebody without morality, because that is part of part and parcel of learning how the world works, learning how to be in the world. And if you bring up a child without morality, then you bring up a child without manners. Basically you're, you're bringing up a child without any kind of grounding and then what's the child to do? Anything that person wants to do with impunity, basically. And then you have all the people who have been brought up that way. How are they going to be enforcing laws? So if the one morality is don't break the law, but of course the, the underlying morality is only break it if you can get away with it and won't get punished, you know, it's off the rails. So I wanted to talk about this briefly because um, this came across, I can't remember if I was reading a podcast, but I made some notes as I do. 
there's no separation now between the church of progressivism and it is a religion and the state because the state supports progressivism at almost every turn. Now that is not to a person, but by and large, the state is very busy supporting progressivism, progressive ideology. And partly the reason is because the state believes that the state is the solution. Now there are individuals, conservatives who are serving in government who don't hold to that and God bless them. That's awesome. But we have this seemingly monolithic government that only tends to move in the one direction and that is to usurp power. Um, So the prevailing church today, and it's throughout our school system and don't argue with me on this. It is throughout. It has pervaded our certainly our public school system, certainly our government school system. But I would argue that is it is also within many of our um, parochial schools, many of our religious schools, if only because they have taken the government school paradigm and and decided to work within its framework. And so this human secularism slash socialism slash humanism slash progressivism slash Marxist ideology is now throughout our education. And, and I, I shouldn't say education, schools, right? Let's just call them schools because they are no longer engaged in education. They're engaged in schooling. Okay. And now we've come to this where it's teaching transgenderism, teaching it. This is how you be a transgender. This is how you behave around transgenders. This is what a transgender person looks like. Never mind that there's absolutely no scientific evidence that a transgender individual exists. I suppose it depends on how you define the word. Uh, Critical race theory, which is just teaching children that they are all racists. It's teaching little white children that they are racist against black people and hateful and bigoted. And it's teaching black children that their race identifies them and there's no way out. There's no cure. There's no cure. It di- it's, it's literally diagnosing your children with a disease and telling them that there is no cure. It is, that's child abuse. And then it's also teaching children to worship government, right? Because government can solve everything. That's the plan. So um, my question is, is there any difference between the ability to discern a boy from a girl and the ability to discern right from wrong or um, moral from immoral? Is there, are we going to, to say, oh, those are two different things? Because I lump them all together. You either can discern and good for you or you can't. And right now we're teaching children not to. And then this final little note, which I thought, uh, sorry, before I go there, I just want to ask if teenagers are now just arbitrarily able to determine their gender, they can mutilate their bodies. Doctors are applauded and paid handsomely for removing 13 year old girls breasts and, um, and the like. Why not pedophilia? I mean, if the child consents, why not? And don't give me, oh, it won't go there. I'm just saying, why wouldn't it? Prove to me that it won't. Prove to me that if we allow, if, if we are, are basically tacitly affirming all of this craziness, 
that it won't go into further craziness because look, if you don't have a backbone, you don't have a backbone. Where do we draw the line? Where, when do we stand up and say, "Mm, that's a lie. That's a lie. Stop lying. Let's, let's deal in truth. Uh, Even, even the smallest child knows the difference between the genders. Boom. Right away. Without, without question knows the difference. So the, the last thing that I will say, because this really struck me, laugh tracks or cate- are catechetical, as in catechism. The laugh track is put onto a sitcom to tell you how to respond to the information. It's called programming for a reason. And I never thought of it that way. I just thought, well, that's stupid. Why, you know, that's a stupid sitcom because that's not funny to me. But in fact, if you sit there and watch the unfunny sitcoms, those laugh tracks are catechizing you. They are training you to understand, no, this is funny. Like, like uh, the gay joke is not funny, but the joke about the stupid dad is funny. The teen coming out to his parents is sad. And so you hear the audience's reaction to that, or it's, or it's happy. And you hear the, the audiences, they're cat. They are training you on how to respond. The schooling doesn't stop. The schooling continues. So uh, join me on Epic TV um, and, and lots of other places. I want to also put a plug in. I just started uh, broadcasting on Liftable TV. So you can go to Liftable TV slash Sam Sorbo. And if you subscribe to Liftable TV, do it from my page uh, because then they know that you're, you've come to watch me or something. I was told that I'm the number one face on Liftable TV right now, which is very encouraging to me. I'm very excited about that. Uh, so go to Liftable TV slash Sam Sorbo to check that out. The podcast is available sort of everywhere. Spreaker, iHeartRadio, Apple, Spotify, Google, um, Google Podcasts, obviously. Um, so the podcast is, a, is, is uh, available everywhere. And so if you're listening on radio at mojo50.com or on um, a podcast, I will be right back. I'm just going to take a brief break and I'll be right back with a guest. If you're watching the video, then, you know, just uh, scroll down to the next video. Also, don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks. Be right back. Control shaming 24-7. Mojo 5 Hello. Welcome back to the Sam Sorbo Show. Thank you so much for joining me. I have a fantastic guest. This is somebody I've been longing to speak with. He's got a new book out. Um, he's the Hayek Emeritus Scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. He's also the author of this new book called Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America. And so joining me right now is Charles Murray. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Sam. Glad to be here. So let's just dive right into it. You've written this. The Biden administration is acting on an assumption that has been incorporated into law for more than 50 years. And that would be it's appropriate for the government to play racial favorites, to dispense favors and penalties according to the group to which individuals belong. You write that your view is that this has proved to be toxic. So let's start there. Okay. It was, excuse me. It was, a, it was a simple thing. Initially, Lyndon Johnson, a year after the Civil Rights Act was passed, said, well, it's not enough to be equal under the law. We must start to have equality, in fact, and uh, said, we'll have affirmative action, which initially was interpreted as 
employers would make sure that they reached out to uh, black candidates, that they let be known the jobs were out there, and that they give uh, blacks perhaps a, <clears throat> the, the benefit of the doubt if there was a close call between two candidates. That's fine. But it soon evolved into a legal regime in which if you didn't have enough black faces, then you could be in trouble. And that in turn... Like a, like a quota system. It was, <clears throat> it was technically not a quota system because technically quotas are illegal, but de facto it became a quota system. Right. Uh, so that the EEOC could come after you if, you if you the number of blacks in your office wasn't commensurate with the proportion of blacks in your area and the number that other employers had. It all got very, very complicated. To clarify, but, the EEOC is the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission? Yeah, that's right. And... Uh, and, and so, so that's the government to, just developing a whole new bureaucracy to enforce an it idea. Was not just a bureaucracy. It was this very elaborate enforcement apparatus that, that came into effect. Well, we lived with that for a long time and nobody complained about it very much and very loudly. But at the time that was going on, you had people who were not getting promoted and even though they had higher test scores on the sergeant's exam in the police force or, or, or better credentials in other respects than the person who was hired. And it's built up, I think, over time, a lot of tension between blacks and whites alike. Uh, with, uh, with the prospect now, conjoined with identity politics, which we're looking at, identity politics, which says the state must treat groups differently according to their race. What was once an inf- what was once kind of a vague dissatisfaction, Sam, that I think a lot of white working class and middle class people were feeling has become, I think, much closer to outright anger, uh, where they're being called racists, they're being called people who are saturated in privilege, who are have caused all of Black's problems and they need to make it up to them. I'm afraid that this is going to trigger a backlash where a lot of whites say, well, if Blacks can play identity politics, so can we. And if that happens, if that happens, we will have given up on the central element of the American creed, which is you treat people as individuals. Uh, It doesn't matter who your parents were. It doesn't matter what your religion or race is. You're supposed to get a fair shake. We made a lot of progress toward making good on that. If we now have every race in the country playing identity politics, that's out the window. So when when uh, Johnson put this through, and by the way, do you do you in your book go into minimum wage at all? No, don't don't, don't talk about that at all. Okay. Um, when Johnson put this through, was there any way? Do you? This is a kind of a weird question, but do you think there was any way for them to predict the the secondary tertiary uh, uh, reactions uh, to it? The you know the downstream um, problems that it might create. It has been sort of self-delusion from day one as to what the implications of things were. When they first passed the Civil Rights Act, there was a lot of concern among employers that they weren't going to be able to hire and fire according to uh, their own choices. And Hubert Humphrey, who was the most liberal member. I'm sorry, Sam. I seem to have a frog in my throat today. (laughs) Uh, Hubert Humphrey, who was one of the most liberal members of the Senate, said that If this bill prevents an employer from hiring or firing for any reason or no reason except race, I will eat it on the steps of the Capitol. Uh, 
that was what he was trying to say then. And that soon became obvious that, well, it wasn't just race. It turned out it was also going to be sex and later uh, sexual orientation, a variety of other limitations. Then when we said affirmative action, it was going to be, we're going to give blacks a fair shake and even give them the benefit of the doubt. And that soon became, if you don't have enough black faces in the workplaces, you're in legal trouble. Every step of the way, people have said, this will be fine. Don't worry about it. And every step of the way, the, the, uh, the, the role of the government in enforcing affirmative action, aggressive affirmative action became more obtrusive. So in my experience, the government creates problems so that it can then come in and try to solve them. Uh, that's probably too cynical. <laughs> I'm willing to grant the good faith of people who want to solve social problems, I am afraid that they have been extremely obtuse about how to go about it. Well, the real challenge, and I want to get into other races in just a minute, because this your book isn't just about blacks versus whites, but the real challenge is that when the government steps in and says, these people need government help, it's, it's such a put down. It's it really is demeaning to the people that they are so, you know, uh, uh, try, are saying that they want to help. It's demeaning to them. And, um, you know, I have a, a friend who points this out. I don't need a white person to save me. You know, far be it for me to, to say I want any white person to come and fix my problems. That's the biggest problem of all. And I wish that, that those black voices would get more play because they have been out there for a long time. But it's not just demeaning in that sense. It's also destructive in a couple of other senses. By the way, I'm, I'm very sensitive to the fact that to have a white guy saying, uh, black, black folks, you ought to understand affirmative action is bad for you. I understand the, the implicit condescension in that. But here's, here's the way it works. Uh, if you are, let's say, a really bright black student going to college, you want to be an engineer, you are plenty smart enough to be an engineer, a good engineer. But given the affirmative action in the universities, you don't go to Iowa State, you don't go to Purdue, you don't go to a, a good university where you become a good engineer, you are admitted to MIT. But even though you're a smart guy, MIT's incoming students are in the top half of the top percentile in the country, probably, in their ability, whereas you're merely in the top 90%, you know, which, so you're really smart, but you're also at the bottom of the class. Right. That's that's demoralizing. And if the universities would publicize their dropout rates for very able black students who have been admitted to schools where they are not competitive, I think it would be a scandal. They will not release those kinds of figures. Same thing happens in the workplace. Here's something that whites don't want to admit. And it's absolutely true. Anytime there is a new face in the workplace who is a black or perhaps a Latino, one of the first thoughts that goes through everybody's mind who's what is, is this an affirmative action hire? That is an assumption that, that every new black employee has to realize is out there, that in effect, they got to prove they didn't get in because of affirmative action. So that's a double burden on them. You can go on and on with the ways that affirmative action has backfired for the people it was supposed to help. Yeah, it's, uh, it really has done a disservice. So you contend that American whites, blacks, Latinos, and Asians have different rates of violent crime as well, different means and distributions of cognitive ability. So let's talk about those truths that you go into in the book. Sure. And, and let me say why, why talk about those things. Because as of last summer, 
we have been given a narrative that says it's all racism. We have these disparities in the way the police treat uh, uh, black communities. We have these disparities in the workforce where Microsoft doesn't have any black senior managers or doesn't have enough. And what can the reason be? It's racism. Well, it, it may be partly racism, although I'm not even sure about that. But there's other reasons that have nothing to do with race. Let's take police. Good example. The black rates of violent crime are about 10 to 12 times those of whites in the major cities. That's a lot. That's a huge difference. What difference does that make to a, a conscientious, professionally trained, responsible police officer? It means that when he's called to an altercation in a low-income black community, he has to look at a completely different threat level than he has to look at if he's going out to an affluent white suburb. He has to worry about the person he's trying to arrest pulling a gun, pulling a knife, otherwise resisting arrest. He has to establish his authority uh, more clearly. He has to uh, call in backup quicker. This is not racism. This is responding to the reality of the environment you're working in. In the case of cognitive ability, uh, the, the same example I gave for the kid who's led into MIT applies to Microsoft. Microsoft would love to have lots of senior black managers, but they hire extremely at the extreme top of the IQ scale. Well, they hire, they hire on meritocracy. And so Mm -hmm. they're not using affirmative action. And the problem is if they, if they start implementing affirmative action, then they risk losing business prowess, right? Yeah. And you know Um, what happens, what happens in those situations is the person is given a big title, a big salary, and is sort of quietly shunted out of the way. A great many talented uh, uh, black uh, employees are also shuttled into the human resources department because the human resources department is one of those where there's the most interface with the outside world. And so they want to show off their minorities that they have. But Chuck, can we make the argument that some of the disparities that we see, look, I I mean, there, there was a young woman who was her class valedictorian and she couldn't do the remedial math in college. She was her high school class valedictorian and could not perform remedial math in her first year of college. So can we make the argument that um, these people, that some people, some people groups uh, in general are underserved because of where they live and because of the school systems? That is definitely true. The very few people, if they have a choice, would put their child in an inner city school. And the reason they wouldn't do it, once again, does not go to racism. It goes to the way that those schools are administered. Many of those schools are unsafe because the administration will not enforce standards of discipline and, and good behavior in classrooms. That's, that's on the school. That's not on the students. Uh, many of them do not uh, give, they, they give graduation diplomas to kids who can't read in some cases. Right. Uh, th- there are all sorts of ways in which the education of black young people in America's urban areas is a disgrace. That, that should lead to a whole lot of reforms, but it doesn't change the situation we face now. Whatever the causes may be of the disparities in crime and disparities in cognitive ability, they aren't going to go away tomorrow. And so when we're talking about America and saying, oh, it's a racist nation, what I'm trying to do is say, we, are, we have to deal with the reality that faces us now, whatever the causes are, 
which is actually the reason for the title of the book, Facing Reality. I'm, I'm, <laughs> it, it is an empirical situation. I don't want to sound cold-blooded about it, but to say, oh, we'll fix this, doesn't get us around being candid about the problems that it creates right now for whatever reasons. Okay, so the name of the book is Facing Reality, Two Truths About Race in America. I'm speaking with Charles Murray. I'm going to take a quick break here. If you're listening on radio, uh, don't worry, I'll be right back. Uh, But for the second part of this interview, you can go to sorbos.locals.com. That's sorbos.locals.com. We'll be right back. And I'm going to ask you about solutions uh, against the combat, you know, against toxic identity and what's happening. Um, What can the average citizen do? Uh, So that's what I want to get into next with Charles Murray. Stay, uh, come back and and uh, hear the rest of this interview at sorbos.locals.com. A free exchange of ideas. Mojo Five O. So welcome back to the Sam Sorbo Show. I'm your host, Sam Sorbo. I'm joined by my guest now. I've had him on before. We had such a lively conversation. I thought, let's bring him back to talk about UFOs. He's a PhD in the philosophy of science from the University of Cambridge. He's a former geophysicist and a college professor, but we won't hold that against him. He now directs Discovery Institute's Center for Science and Culture in Seattle. And so he's here to talk about UFOs, uh, but you can also mention your book if you want. Nothing's off limits here. (laughs) Welcome to the program, Stephen C. Meyer. It's great to be with you again, Sam. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, the UFO thing really was, you know, all of a sudden they're divulging all this information about UFOs and we're seeing, you know, more and more sightings of them. It was just right. All of a sudden UFOs were kind of everywhere for a minute. Well, a big buildup because there was a a report released by the Navy on June 25th uh, to Congress. And uh, as I expected, it was completely inconclusive. Uh, primarily because there are so many competing explanations of what they're now calling uh, uh, unidentified aerial phenomena. And um, so uh, I, I, my, my interest in this is... Um, Wait, unidentified aerial phenomena is UAP. UAP, yes, not UFO, but I, it's, it's like- probably... That does nothing for me. It, it, so much catchier, it, right? It's yeah, it's done nothing to settle the issue either. What exactly are these <laughs> these uh, these sightings or visions? What is they're, it? They're... I don't know. Let's change the name. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So there, there's you know, of course, various explanations. UFO enthusiasts think they they might maybe alien astronauts. Uh, the pilots have been uncertain. There's been concern that they might be. Uh, providing evidence of military capability from some of our competitor nations that we are unaware of the, the Navy. The one thing the Navy did rule out is that they are, they are the result of some new technology that we possess. Uh, another, another uh, explanation is that they are kind of uh, visual mirages of various kinds produced by um, terrestrial aircraft. There's been Have one very out Harry Potter. Harry Potter did not make it into the into the, <laughs> the report as best I know. Yeah, right. Exactly. Exactly. So um, my, my, you know, my interest in this, I've got a piece coming out in one of the national newspapers this weekend uh, and just pointing out that it's not just UFO enthusiasts and Navy pilots who have been talking about aliens. Uh, it's actually scientists have been talking about them for several decades as a possible explanation for the origin of life. And they've proposed alien intelligence because there are so many signs of intelligence inside living cells. And because it's turned out to be so very difficult to explain the origin of life on planet earth. So the hypothesis is maybe these, uh, maybe the, 
the, the signature of intelligence that we find in life and the digital code and DNA and the whole complex processing system for information that we find in even the simplest cells is, indicates that there was an intelligence involved in the origin of life. But rather than proposing that that was uh, evidence of divine creation, some scientists have posited that the, the alien intelligence, uh, alien astronaut, uh, seeded life on Earth after that alien intelligence first evolved on some other planet. And that really uh, kind of begs credulity. Like they just keep going farther and farther back. And, and really the argument that they propose is just with enough time. So a thousand monkeys typing uh, on a thousand typewriters will eventually write Shakespeare. Somewhere in the cosmos, not, not here, okay, right. not here, not, mind maybe you. Not the here. Con- so not yeah, the here. conditions weren't, weren't here. I mean, it, it seems so fanciful, but no less a person, uh, personage than uh, Sir Francis Crick, who was the co-discoverer of DNA and very much aware of its information bearing properties. Uh, after all, uh, Bill Gates has said DNA is like a software program, but much more complex than any we've ever created. Richard Dawkins, the world's uh, greatest scientific atheist, has acknowledged that DNA is like a machine code. So you got software inside cells, which seems to suggest a master programmer for life. And so then the question is, where did the where did that programming happen? Where did that and uh, some have proposed out in space? Richard Dawkins actually <laughs> floated this idea uh, in a film you may have seen. It was several years ago called Expelled with uh, Ben Stein. And near the end of the film, Ben got Richard Dawkins to acknowledge that quote No one knows how life first evolved through chemical evolutionary processes, but uh, it, <clears throat> that and and therefore there, there might have been a signature of intelligence in the cell. But he said, if so, it must have evolved through a purely natural means somewhere else in the cosmos. And it, you're right. It just it begs the question because uh, of the ultimate origin of life and the ultimate origin of information, because it doesn't tell it, it, it provides no explanation for how the information needed to build the first cell on some other planet arose from which then the alien intelligence would have presumably right. evolved and then sent life to earth. Uh, this is proposed. I think the ancient Aztecs sent a spaceship to a foreign planet so that, that the, they could plant life there. And then life there actually sent life back here. That, there you go. It, it's no, it's no less fanciful, is it? I mean, that's, circular, that's what, yeah. circular reasoning. If, if we're going to beg questions, why not just beg some more, you know? <laughs> so, right. Um, Anyway, so that's, a, uh, you know, so that's been the nature of my interest in this. There's actually, it, this theory actually has a name. It's called panspermia or directed panspermia. And it's, it's been at least floated by very serious scientists, Fred Hoyle, Sir Francis Crick, uh, and uh, even Richard Dawkins, who I now think probably regrets that because uh, he said it on camera. But uh, that was the, um, and there, in, in, in my book, uh, Return of the God Hypothesis, I actually take this, hypo- this hypothesis on and take it seriously for the following reason. When I previously made a case for intelligent design in my book, uh, Signature in the Cell, I didn't attempt to identify the designing intelligence. I just argued that an intelligence of some kind must be responsible for the information that we find inside living cells, because information al- always arises from an intelligence of some kind, whether we're talking about a computer pro- program or a paragraph in a book or information embedded in a radio signal. Um, and there are, by the way, scientists looking for life in space who are looking for evidence of life in radio signals. They're looking for information embedded in a radio signal. It's called the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. And while we haven't found any such 
evidence of intelligence in radio signals coming from space, the very informational signature that they're looking for is present in the DNA molecule. So you can see why people are thinking there must have been a mind, there must have been intelligence. But of course, positing intelligence in space doesn't solve the ultimate question, which is where did the information come from <laughs> to get life going there? And it also doesn't solve another question. And this is well, something they, I dra- they, I'm just going to interject here. I think they'd, yeah, go ahead. Rather, they'd rather worship an alien creature than God. Yeah, uh, there is a religious impulse in this, no question. Ben Stein, after interviewing uh, Richard Dawkins, said uh, he, he characterized it as the ABG hypothesis, a- anything but God. Anything but God. A- yeah. But there's, there's something that the alien intelligence hypothesis definitely doesn't explain. It doesn't explain the origin of the universe. And it doesn't explain the fine-tuning of the universe that physicists are talking about, the, the delicate balance of all these physical parameters that make not only life, but even basic chemistry possible. And many scientists now think that so, that points to a fine-tuner, but that right. couldn't be an alien because the aliens evolved, presumably, long after the beginning of the universe when those fine-tuning parameters were set. Right. So let's talk about the fine-tuning parameter because it was either Dawkins or Hitchens who said that the, the one the one argument that the atheists really can't respond to is the fine tuning argument. So explain the fine tuning argument, if you don't mind. And uh, let's just talk about that for a minute. Yeah, you bet. So the, it was starting in about the 1950s and 60s, the physicists began to dis, uh, discover that there, were the, that there were many parameters of physics that could well have been otherwise. For example, the strength of gravitation or the strength of the force called the cosmological constant that's pushing the universe apart from outward from the Big Bang at the beginning or the masses of the elementary particles. And physicists now characterized our universe, now characterize our universe as sometimes they call it a fortunate universe or a Goldilocks universe, where the fundamental forces are not too strong, not too weak. The masses of the elementary particles are not too heavy, not too light. The speed of light is not too fast, not too slow. All these things are just right. And uh, Fred Hoyle, who was uh, once an atheist, later having discovered some of these parameters said that uh, a, a common sense interpretation of the data such suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics and chemistry and that there are no blind forces in nature we're talking about that uh, fine tuning points to a fine tuner, but the well, can interesting, I just, yeah, I go just ahead. want to interject because I love that. Um, the idea that physics and the laws of physics exist, they predate the universe. The laws of mathematics predates the universe. Well, they, they certainly predate the origin of any would-be aliens or us. <laughs> and they, they were set. Or the, the Air Force, for that yeah, matter. Yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and the, the, the fine-tuning parameters were set either at the very beginning of the universe or soon after. And long before any uh, complex organism could have evolved. For right, the so when we talk about fine-tuning, we're saying, and you can look this, you can look this up in um, Stephen, Hawk, Stephen Hawking's book. Stephen Hawking talks about it. Yeah. Most of the major, the leading physicists acknowledge that fine tuning is a real phenomenon that so, needs an explanation. In other words, if the force of the explosion had been, I think it's one times 10 to the 27th of a degree, uh, you know, that much off, then it wouldn't have expanded and formed the planets. It would have collapsed. If it had been that much greater, it wouldn't have formed the solar system. It would have continued to expand. And so even he admits that there isn't a, a, a plausible explanation for not just that, but the idea that we have that, we have the gravitational constant 
which is what it is. We have all of these other parameters that fit together. That's the fine tuning thing is that it's this, um, this co- coalition of coincidences that it, it's too, too much to be explained away with, well, it was just by accident. And the, the further argument is if evolution just happened by accident, why aren't we still seeing it today? If we, if I evolved from an ape, why, why is there still the ape? What, what happened to those guys that they didn't evolve? And, well, and uh, the, yeah, absolutely. I get asked this a lot. And of course, one of the most obvious common sense observations that we all make is that like begets like, you know, dogs produce right. dogs and frogs produce frogs. And, and I didn't uh, give birth to toasters. Yes, exactly. Or giraffes. And, and so the, the postulation from the neo-Darwinists are giraffes. The, the, the neo-Darwinists say, well, you know, give it enough time, very small changes add up. But what we see is that the, the processes that produce small changes that we can observe tend to degrade the genetic information that's present in living systems. And to build something new, you can't degrade information. You need new information. It's just like in the computer world. You want to give your computer a new function. You've got to provide new code. And so the question is, where does all that information come from at the point of the first life, the origin of life, and the point of the big explosions that we see in the fossil record, like the Cambrian explosion, where you get completely new forms of life arising, Th- that new information, I think, indicates the activity of mind. But back to the fine-tuning, yes. uh, you're right. It's present from the very beginning, and therefore, it, it can't be explained by us or by any alien intelligence within the cosmos. We don't even have atoms for the th- first 380,000 years after the big, the big Bang. It's a plasma state. And yet, the initial arrangement of matter and energy, physicists tell us, was fine-tuned to an, an unimaginable level of precision. The number they use is one part in 10 to the 10th power, raised again to the 123rd power, what they call it a hyper-exponential number. You can't even get your mind around the level of precision that's involved there. So off a little bit this way or that way, we don't get stable galaxies, we don't get planets, we don't get anything. We don't even get basic chemistry with many of these parameters unless they're exactly finely tuned. And so the, exp- the go-to explanation for that among uh, secular physicists is as weird as the alien designer hypothesis. They posit that uh, there are billions and billions of other universes out there that are disconnected, unconnected from our own, and that we just happen to be in the lucky universe where the parameters ended up just right, whereas all those other ones got it wrong. And therefore, it was just a, a crapshoot, and, and it, was all, it was still a, a chance explanation. We won at roulette. <laughs> yeah, yes, we won at roulette. I mean, it's, it's so, it just makes me laugh because it's like, hey, my computer's not working. Well, why don't you hire a guy to fix it? No, no, evolution will take care of it. Eventually it'll work again. In some universe, somewhere. somewhere. Yeah. Like it's, it's so, you know, everything. We wouldn't, you're absolutely right, Sam, but we wouldn't accept these types of explanations in any other realm of experience. Right. But this is what the atheist scientists have been forced to invoke, these types of explanations. Uh, in order to explain these really powerful evidences of design, digital code in cells, fine tuning in the laws of physics. And then the big question, the biggest question of all, where did the universe come from? We now know that the physical universe, as best we can tell, had a beginning. Matter and energy, space and time weren't always here. They came into existence a finite time ago, not by some alien, because the aliens within the cosmos, it couldn't cause the cosmos to, to come into existence. Uh, and instead, this, this is the basis of, of what's sometimes called the cosmological argument for the existence of God. To explain the origin of the universe as a whole a finite time ago requires some entity which is outside matter, space, time, and energy and could act to bring something new into existence. 
And insofar as theism, the traditional belief in God posits the existence of such an entity, it provides a much better explanation for the origin of the universe than some sort of matter and energy, because after all, that's what comes into existence at the beginning. Before that, there is no matter and energy to do the causing. Or time. Or time. Or time. Yeah, it requires a, an agent that lives or, or exists independently of our space and time. And Remind problem, you of anyone? And the problem, really, the, the, the problem that we face is that our laws of physics, which we accept now as being proven, uh, postulate that there is no reaction without an initial action. And so the universe doesn't exist without somebody acting, something acting. And so if there's nothing, then nothing acted, then nothing evolved. From nothing, nothing comes. Exactly. And so and- the idea that God spoke and created everything is, is really the, the foundational idea. So... Um, right. And every worldview has to uh, answer that basic question. What is the thing or the entity or the process from which everything else came? And the dominant default worldview of the scientific community from the late 19th century forward has been something called materialism, the idea that matter and energy are the things from which everything else came. And they were here eternally and they were self-existent in the same way that uh, Jews and Christians think of God as eternal and self-existent. But the one thing that we now know, as best, as best we can tell from multiple lines of evidence, is that matter and energy and the, uni- the universe of space and time were not here eternally. They are not, they, they are not a good candidate to be the thing from which everything else came because they pop into existence a finite time ago. And, and one of the basic rules of reasoning, one of the most fundamental principles of rationality, is the principle of causality. Whatever begins to exist must have a cause. Well, if the universe began to exist, it must have a cause, but causes are separate from themselves. So it can't be the realm of matter, space, time, and energy that caused the universe to come into existence. That's what begins to exist. Right. Okay, so uh, Stephen C. Meyer is the author of uh, Return of the God Hypothesis, which is a fascinating book and, and really very timely, in fact. And I think uh, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling like we are on the verge of a great another awakening, and I'm very hopeful about that. Um, I wanted to ask you one last question before I let you go. The timing of all of these UFO announcements do you have any comment on the timing of like why all of a sudden we're getting all of this download now? You know, I really don't. It's puzzling to me too, Sam. Uh, we've had people talking about this since the fifties, you know, with the sightings in Roswell and, and, uh, and why the, the Navy should suddenly release this. I, I really don't know. The one thing that, that has been very, is very apparent is once they've released the report, it has not settled the issue at all. And uh, yes, so also, and that, that to me is highly suspect also. And so I look at it as a distraction and it's a very pleasant distraction. I really enjoyed the conversation and I enjoy you. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on again. I appreciate it. All right. It. Stephen yeah. C. Meyer, the author of return of the God hypothesis, quick break here for those of you on radio and podcast, I'll be right back. And uh, thanks so much for joining me. Happily promoting the four F's freedom, faith, free markets, and fun. Mojo five O. Hi there. Sam Sorbo here for the Sam Sorbo show. I've decided to do do a segment that's just mail just for a few minutes uh, because I am getting a lot of mail. I really do appreciate all of the missives that I get everywhere. Uh, As you know, you can find me um, on YouTube, also on rumble Um, where I've been assured that they won't take down my interviews. Uh, YouTube did take down an interview recently with a doctor 
who has not been dis, dis uh, what is it? It's not disbarred, uh, dismissed from the AMA. And yet YouTube saw fit to take him down um, because it wasn't me. It was him. I'm blaming him for getting me taken down. <laughs> you know what's going on. All right. Um, it's, so that's where the videos are showing also at sorbos.locals.com. And you can tune in there for extra content that you won't find anywhere else. Uh, so now let's just go straight to mailbag. At Sam Sorbo, I don't understand. What does religion have to do with getting a vaccine shot for COVID? I am a Christian myself, and I got my vaccine shot back in April of this year through my local health department. People are using religion as a crutch to avoid getting a vaccine shot. By the way, this was an answer to Kate Corrigan coming on the program and explaining that she got a religious exemption, that she didn't want to get the COVID shot. She had the exemption. Her religious university told her that she wasn't, she was no longer invited to come to graduation. She got them to change their position. They did it very quietly without letting her know that they just changed her web, changed their website. And then when the website was changed, uh, Kate Corrigan started getting a bunch of hate uh, and threats from the student body and the faculty at the university. Um, including some other punishments with regards to classes that she was uh, enrolled in and stuff like that, just for standing her ground for the religious exemption. And so this person wrote to me, um, people are using religion as a crutch. So I, I reject that term, uh, and I'll get back to that, to avoid getting a vaccine shot. It's a crutch to avoid getting a vaccine shot. Um, and also people are listening to the negative media and a bunch of gossip going around about people dying from the vaccine shot. Well, of course, some people die from the vaccine shot if they just get the cheapest one or if they already have health problems. That's why I decided to go through my health department. So (laughs) there are a couple of sort of glaring uh, issues with this missive, but I do appreciate the challenge. First of all, How dare you claim that they're using religion as a crutch if it's something that they object to because their religion forbids it? Who are you to say that that that's not appropriate? Now, looking at the numbers of this virus and the fact that the death rate in 2020 was no greater than the death rate in 2018, Even if you take into account, well, people weren't um, going out and there were fewer car accident deaths, there were more deaths in nursing homes because uh, because governors put COVID patients into nursing homes where they should that where they least should have gone. It almost evens out. You could make the case that there should have been more deaths in 2020 because of COVID, but there weren't. So a person has to weigh getting injected with a so-called vaccine. And and I argue the term vaccine because just because you change the name doesn't mean it's the same as the the older vaccines. And there are a lot of people out there who struggle with the older vaccines um, because they saw the negative ramifications themselves personally. Child's perfectly fine one day. Literally the next day, the child ends up in the hospital as a result of the vaccine or some supernatural thing. And so I guess if you believe in the supernatural, that, that could be. Um, 
So to characterize somebody using it as a crutch, if it were something that was obvious to that person that it worked, which it's not obvious, according to the study that's just come out of uh, England, a full 50% of people who are now suffering from the COVID Delta variant have been fully vaccinated, 50%. So I'm not convinced that it is at all effective in uh, many cases. I know that all the numbers are jumbled, but for England, for the British to sort of admit to that figure was kind of like, and it was from a reliable source, although don't, uh, I can't remember where. Um, uh, and so people, and people are listening to the negative media. So what is the negative media? Is that media that's just doesn't count and a bunch of gossip? Okay. Is that just, I, I understand you mean gossip. Okay. Yeah. I don't listen to gossip. I look at media and I look at, I look at reports and I look at the report from the CDC from 10 years ago that said that uh, cloth masks are completely ineffective. And I look at the email from Fauci that predates everything basically that says that cloth masks are completely ineffective And so that's what I base my decisions on. And I'm sure that Kate Corrigan also looked at all of that. But most importantly, the reports are overwhelming that the vaccine was created using aborted fetal baby parts. That's a problem that creates a valid religious exemption, period. So try not to characterize people who have valid religious concerns about getting something implanted in their body. Here's the thing. Are you against rape? Why would you force somebody to be injected with a foreign substance if they were against it themselves personally for any reason? It's unconscionable. Now, if you want to sequester yourself, that's your choice. If you have the shot, what do you care? You're protected. Or is it that you don't feel protected? What is it? So I wrote back um, that I was going to answer this on the show, but I also, I did write this. Suffice it to say that each individual as a creation of God must make their own decision regarding the shots. It's of utmost importance not to consider everyone as simply the same because they were created equal. It's ultimately the Christian doctrine to allow each individual sovereignty over his or her body and no other. Sadly, there are many people who disagree with this view and they work actively to undermine it, convincing others to forego their Christian teaching in favor of fear But God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy 1.7. So I wanted to thank the person who wrote me that for being one of those people who thinks things through and asks questions because that's important. Okay, let's see. I love this. Uh, Nick, thank you for writing. My wife and I are high school teachers in Pensacola, Florida. And just wanted to say, thank you guys for fighting the fight. So many in this world are afraid of bucking the system, but you guys stand up for what is right. You are a beacon in such a dreary world. So I want to thank you for that because um, having the support of even teachers is, is um, it's a blessing for me uh, because I do criticize our education system uh, soundly 
And so the idea that there are teachers out there who feel the same way, and, you know, I want to encourage you, um, see what you can do to get out of this perverted system, um, or at least get the unions out of your school. So my understanding is, especially here in Florida, and I, I believe this is nationwide, if 50% plus one of your teachers, so just over 50% of the teachers in, I guess it's the district, opt out of the union, you can get the union out. And that means the union won't be training your school board and won't be you know, whispering in the ear of your school superintendent, which means that you get the communist ideology or the over the that overreaching communist ideology out. Now, I can't answer for individuals, right? Because there are a lot of communist individuals who are serving on school boards, who serve as school superintendents, who who are teaching our kids. Um, but there, but but that is a path forward if you're still going to be in the system. And I understand teachers who stay because they they feel like they're doing the kids a service. I get that. Uh, I don't know how effective it is, but I but I do understand it. I do understand it. Um, okay, this is also a response to Kate Corrigan talking about her fight for religious liberty at a religious institution. Did I say that? Uh, listening to her, I could have guessed she was homeschooled. There tends to be a level of poise and confidence in logical thinking in homeschoolers that doesn't seem to be there in many traditionally or public educated young people. That is the truth. Because typically homeschool children are challenged by adults a lot more than school children. And I don't know, have you ever had a conversation with a kid in high school, goes to public school, and you try to have a conversation and you get monosyllabic answers and grunts? Um, so that's what, so, so that's the difference between that and a homeschool child. Now, of course, some children, you just won't, they just won't open up. They're just, that's not who they are, right? But by and large, homeschool children are um, better, better socialized and more well-spoken. Uh, let's see, Sorbo talks the decline of New York City with Seth Barron. So this is in response to my interview with Seth Barron. Corruption has a very long history in New York. However, corruption only exists with the unspoken permission of the people. If the people reject and refuse to tolerate corruption, then it will largely disappear. The problem with New York, Baltimore, Portland, Seattle, San Francisco, Atlanta, etc., is that the people in those cities vote for corruption. Hey, if you vote for it, don't be surprised when you get it. And so the idea is repent to yourself apologize to yourself for getting in that situation and then promise yourself it'll never happen again and then forgive yourself and accept yourself again. And it works. And you can find freedom and happiness that way. Uh, So that's my sermon for the day, I guess. (laughs) Thanks so much for joining me on the Sam Sorbo show on mojo50.com and also wherever fine podcasts are, iHeart, Apple, Google, Spotify, um, all of them, Spreaker.com as well. Uh, And then if you're joining me on video, I want to thank you for joining me for this segment. Uh, Be sure to like and subscribe and uh, tune back in for further segments. And if you want more of my great content that is not available just publicly, go to sorbos.locals.com. Thanks so much for joining me. I'm Sam Sorbo. Sorbo. 